This is the Epilog Audio Experience. The language and content on this podcast may be unsuitable for certain audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to History Chatter. In the last episode, we were talking about Qutub Minar and the differences and uh, similarities between popular perspectives and historical researches. We were talking, for instance, about uh, how ideas are translated in popular perceptions and that in turn create long-term impressions in people's minds about uh, characters, about icons and about mythologies. We continue with similar um, concerns in this episode as well. But we do that uh, with a separate and distinct approach. We do that with a conversation with uh, perhaps one of the very best Hinduism and India scholars in the world, Professor Wendy Doniger of Chicago University. In a 60-year-old career, Professor Doniger has published over 40 books. Almost all of them deal with various aspects with Hinduism, religion, mythology, and religious history of India. Today, Professor Doniger spoke to me about her career, about her choice of India and Hinduism as a theme of research, going back uh, to the beginning of her career, moving into the concerns that led to the writing of her recent work called Wing Stallions and Wicked Mares, Horses in Indian History and Mythology, which is just released in India. She would also um, spoke about, speak about relations between history and mythology, concerns of the people, how stories changed in translation in over time, and um, her forthcoming works. This is one of the episodes of History Chatter that you simply cannot miss. Here's the conversation with Professor Doniger. Wendy, I'd begin with the first question that's the most obvious. How did you come to study India uh, to begin with? The earliest experiences of India, of Sanskrit, of coming in touch with India as an idea, as a reality. Where do we begin? We begin quite early, really. Um, I had a remarkable mother. Um, I wrote a book about her and my father called The Donegers of Great Neck. About yes, I'd read parts of it. Yeah, yeah. And um, she gave me to read when I was quite young um, some rumor gardens books about India and then E.M. Forster's A Passage to India. And then I read the Upanishads in a, what I now know was a very bad translation um, that Penguin <laughs> published. So as a little girl, I knew about stories about India, and I found India a very interesting place. Then in high school, when I was 12 and 13, I studied Latin, and I liked the old language. And my Latin teacher, just privately for fun, uh, taught me Greek. And I liked Greek even better than Latin because it was older and it had a different script. And my Latin and Greek teacher said, well, if you like that, you might very well like Sanskrit. And I said, what is Sanskrit? 
And she said, it's even older and it has an even more different script. Um, and that then went together with my ideas about India that I'd gotten from British writers, really. I didn't read that much real Indian literature. And I decided that I really wanted to learn about India. And I gradually discovered that Indian culture suited me better than the American culture of the 50s. We're talking about the 1950s now. That I like the bright colors that women wore. In in America, you're supposed to wear sort of tasteful gray and light brown. And <laughs> I like to wear a purple shirt with a with a turquoise skirt. And everybody said, well, are you going to be in the circus with that? Are you a gypsy? What's the matter with you? And I thought in India, you can wear a, a purple shirt and a, and a orange blouse and so forth. And I liked Indian food. I liked Indian painting. I liked the way there's so much going on in an Indian painting. I, I liked that better than uh, European, the Mona Lisa. There's just one person in the Mona Lisa. Who wants to see that when you can see a painting of Krishna and the gopis and there's a hundred people on the screen? I liked Indian music. The whole culture really appealed to me. And then when I went to Radcliffe, I had been very in high school, I'd been very competitive, and I um, I thought I might like to be a writer, and I thought of majoring in English, and I realized everyone majored in English, and I'd have to compete with everybody. Whereas if I took Sanskrit and majored in the study of Sanskrit as a freshman, as 17 years old, I probably wouldn't have any competition. And indeed, I was the only person majoring in Sanskrit at Radcliffe. And I like the idea of sort of getting away from the real world from American politics. My parents were very political. My mother was a communist. I was a communist. We were all very active in in the world. And I got tired of that at the age of 17. It was a kind of sannyasa in a way, a kind of renunciation of the things that everybody else was doing and that I had been doing and wanting to go someplace private all by myself long ago and far away. And that was the study of Sanskrit. Everything came together. It had everything I really wanted. Um, and I never changed my mind. I never doubted it for a minute. It was, um, I never looked back. Studied Sanskrit all my life and then studied Indian literature more broadly. But it begets how it all began a long time ago. But um, how did the idea of researching India come up? This must have been in, in Radcliffe or in Harvard when... Um, the idea for a PhD came up, right? Well, I decided if I wasn't going to be a writer, I was going to be a scholar. And, and, some, and to some extent, to be a scholar is to be a writer. A good scholar writes books and so forth. I wasn't going to be a novelist. If I wasn't going right. to be a novelist, I was going to be a scholar. And then when you study Sanskrit, you begin to see what the possibilities are, what other people have written, what the subject matter is. So I did a, a BA dissertation at Radcliffe, and then I went on to do an MA and a PhD. Um, I had been reading with Daniel Ingalls, the great Sanskrit professor. I'd been mm. reading Kalidasa's uh, Kumara Sambhava, the birth of the of the son, the birth of the child of Shiva and Parvati, which right, is a right. great old Sanskrit poem. And I liked it very much. And then Ingalls just happened to mention, you know, these stories were told earlier than this in these texts called the Puranas, but they aren't very good, you know, they're kind of sloppy. So I said, I'd like to read those Puranas. And to Ingalls' disgust, I liked the stories in the Puranas much better than I liked Kalidasa. I was really, after all, a lowbrow. The Puranas, it was like a, a comic <laughs> book for 
version of Kalidasa. It was like a classic comic that were written in a very easy Sanskrit, sometimes incorrect Sanskrit, but the stories had all sorts of things in them that I loved. And from then on, I was really not interested in the high Kavya literature, the, the fancy poetry of Sanskrit, but in the more popular, in a way it was um, an anti-aristocratic move as well. It was as if I had said, I don't want to listen to Mozart, I want to listen to Elvis Presley. And uh, Ingalls was shocked and disappointed, I think. Um, although later on, he too became in, interested in the Shiva Purana. So that became my particular niche. No one really liked the Puranas or respected them. They were regarded as bad history. The dates were all wrong and so forth. As dynastic, they were looking for dynastic history in the Puranas because they, right. they were right. histories. But there really isn't much dynastic history in the Puranas. But what there is is stories. And so in some ways, I kind of resurrected the Puranas as a source not a failed history, but a very good folklore and mythology. And um, that's really what I, what I did all my life. I mean, I did study the Vedas. I did a translation of the Rig Veda. I did some poetry. But my heart was always in this lower class um, material, this more miscellaneous and anonymous uh, material of folklore. Um, and I still love it. Um, and I also love the Mahabharata. More than the Ramayana. The Ramayana is more like Kavya. It says it is a poem. It calls itself a poem. And the Ramayana, the Mahabharata calls itself a history. So I was more interested in Mahabharata than Ramayana and always interested in, in the text and interested in the ways that they developed from the early text to the medieval text. And I was also charmed by modern retellings, and including the Amachitra Kata tellings, the um, all of the versions seemed interesting to me. The variety of it all is what I loved. I loved that there was no one version, no one Bible, no mm. one text that everyone had to read, that, that you could tell the story differently in Gujarati and in Hindi and in Tamil and so forth. I, I loved that. I really loved that. So, so um, you've been studying what can rather anomalously be called a subalternized version of the Hinduism from uh, very early on in your career. Is that a good way of putting it? I didn't think of it at the time. We didn't have the word at the time. Subaltern. Yes, yes, which is why I said anomalously. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, to the extent that I had been raised as a communist, although as a rich communist, a category that did exist a lot in America <laughs> at the time. McCarthy um, times, yeah. Yeah, um, so I always did have an interest in the people, as it were, and in popular material. I mean, I read Tolstoy and so forth, but I read Tolstoy's stories about Russian peasants, and right. that was kind of what it was like. So I, I would call myself not so much a subaltern as a lowbrow. I really right. am a lowbrow, even though I read, I read languages, but my interests are still very simple. I still really like Hollywood movies, and I read old books. I like Dickens. I like stories. I don't read a lot of difficult poetry. Um, I don't like read a lot of theory. I really right. am a lowbrow, and therefore I like the stories, the folk tales, the fairy tales, the stories that, that ordinary people like. Um, and in that sense, I guess I've always been subaltern. 
That 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 would be a bit of an understatement because you've been um, probably world's uh, one of the world's leading students of Indian mythology, and you've at length engaged with uh, psychoanalysis and uh, mm-hmm. and post structuralism and structuralism. So uh, to say that yes, you no. don't like or read theory is a bit of an understatement, isn't it? Well, I don't read very fancy and difficult theory. I don't read Derrida. I don't read that kind of stuff. But um, Levi Strauss. I read Levi Strauss. I read Freud. You know right. that that kind of theory. I read some of Jung too. Jung used to make me mad, but but um, uh, that kind of theory, I suppose, I, I did read uh, and found an interest in. But mythology, after all, is um, not highbrow stuff. Mythology is the stuff of the people. Um, The people who hate it, uh, people who say that it is full of lies and has been used to mislead the people, my my communist friends like my colleague Bruce Lincoln, who hates mythology, hates it because he feels it is indeed um, something that belongs to the people, but that has been used by governments and by religious leaders to manipulate them and to do things that are not for their benefit, to keep them down in a way. Um, and there's some truth in that, but that's not what it really is about, in my opinion, although that, that's one thing that happens. But it's, it's effective that way because it is the literature of the people. And oh. um, the vernacular mythologies, the things that are there in the Puranas, Puranas are composed by men because really only men read Sanskrit in um, ancient and medieval India. But those men who, who knew Sanskrit also knew, no one only knew just Sanskrit. You also knew Hindi or Tamil. You couldn't go out of the, the schoolroom into the world and, and buy a meal or talk to your wife or your nanny or your cook unless you spoke whatever the real language was of your area. So any Sanskritist was bilingual. So anyone right. who wrote a Purana also had a, a nanny and a cook who told him stories when he was a little boy and told it to him in Tamil or or Rajasthani or Telugu. And mm-hmm. so the, 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 the literature of women and of low-class people, the servants, right. gets into little boys because they're raised by these people. And when they grow up and learn Sanskrit, they put those stories into the Puranas. So even though they were composed ultimately by men, those are the stories of the people, really. And they are vernacular stories, and they're very simple stories. They're not all complicated. The language doesn't have the multiple meanings that Kavya has. You read a Purana, it pretty much says what it means. Um, it's easy right. to read. It's just the way uh, the New Testament Greek is really easy Greek to read. The, the, new, the Greek that Paul preached in and ultimately Jesus, I suppose. So that's simple stuff. It's not like later theology, which is weird and difficult and Aristotle and stuff like that. Um, So even that Sanskrit literature is in a sense plebeian. It is um, subaltern, if you like. It is is the stories of the people, even though it was ultimately transmitted only by privileged men. Right. I I now ask a very basic and simple question. Given that this podcast is uh, mainly meant uh, and targeted to a 
non-specialist audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, your whole career over the last 60 years has been a study of myths and you've held position in um, history departments in SWAS and later in South Asian um, departments in the US, especially Chicago since 78. Uh, um, how do you distinguish between history and myths? A very general question and I'd like you to reflect uh, on this at some length for our audience. It's a good question. Um, I was trained as a Sanskritist. I have a BA in Sanskrit, an MA in Sanskrit, a PhD in Sanskrit, all from Harvard, and a DPhil from Oxford in Oriental Studies. So I never studied history, and I never studied religion. So the irony is that I have been employed, not originally in Sanskrit departments, but in history departments and in history of religions departments. So I'm an imposter. I, <laughs> I am breaking into fields for which I'm not really qualified. So that's an interesting situation all in itself. When I was in England and working in London, and I gave a talk that was heard by Christoph von Führer Heimendorf, who was the director of the School of Oriental and African Studies. He thought I was bright. He wanted to hire me. He tried to put me into the Sanskrit department, and the Sanskritist there, who shall remain nameless, said, no way, absolutely (laughs) not. You may not hire this woman. So he went to Bernard Lewis, who was the head of the history department, and he gave him some stuff I'd written to read, and Bernard Lewis said, great, let's take her into the history department. So I jumped boundaries right at the start of my career in 1972 when I was hired at SOAS in the history department. And ultimately, when I was hired in 1978 at the Divinity School, I also jumped a boundary because I had never taken a course in religion. But you know, you can learn a lot of things besides the things that you were officially trained to do. Um, I was always interested in religion, and I was always interested in religious history. I've never been much of a of a card-carrying historian. I've never been much about dynasties and working in the archives and so forth. I'm not a real historian. I have friends who are real historians. But I'm interested in the history of religion. And the history of religion means the history of religious texts as well as the history of religious events. I am not a good historian of religious events. My colleague Bruce Lincoln is someone who does religious events. So I'm a very narrow kind of a historian to the extent that I'm a, I'm a historian of literature. I'm a his, historian of texts. I'm a historian of myths. I am an, I'm interested in the way that stories change in the course of history. And in that sense, I'm a kind of a historian. Um, and I've, I've always been more interested in the text than in the context, shall we say. So when I worked on this book about horses, I knew lots and lots of stories about horses. What I had to learn in order to make the book uh, sound was what really happened with horses in India, who imported horses, how much they cost, how they were used, what kind of horses there were, um, and so forth. So I had to learn that kind of history the way anyone learns anything by reading books and talking to people who know what I already knew was lots and lots of stories about horses. So, so the history and myth to me go together. Um, it's myth that I've always been more interested in, but I've increasingly over the years felt it necessary to be more and more responsible for adding 
the historical background for saying, why was this story told at this time? What was happening at this time? And that really is a later development, which came in part from teaching at the University of Chicago all that time with real historians who would say, well, where did this story come from? Who told it? You know, what was going on in India at that time? And I would say, gosh, I don't know. Um, And they'd say, well, you really ought to know. And so I kind of learned to contextualize stories, myths, and to learn more of the real history in the sense of political history, economic history, social history, um, in addition to what I'd always been interested in, which was literary history. So that was a growth process for me over the years. And even in this most recent book, I had to do a lot of homework uh, to fit in the background of the actual history of horses in India to what I already knew for years and years and years, which was the stories that were told about horses. Right, right. Um, In fact, uh, you um, seem to suggest that history and myths don't always live terribly separate lives, as some analysts would have us believe. Um, that they continue to interact and engage one another in some kind of a dialogue. Uh, Absolutely, yeah. They do, and uh, you can't really understand the one without the other. I don't think you can understand political history without understanding the stories that were people telling people were telling at that time. I mean, if, if you even look at the chaos in America today, when you see the, the crazy things that are happening, people not getting vaccinated, for instance, it's because stories are being told, mythological stories about evil vaccinators, and it takes up the old witchcraft stories, you know, watch out for these doctors, watch out for these people. There's a lot of mythology. There's a lot of um, imaginative, unscientific theory going on which is changing the course of what is happening in America today, where a lot of people are getting sick and dying because of the stories that people are telling them that they believe. So that that happens always. It's happening at this very moment. It happened at the time of the Rig Veda and the time of the Hebrew Bible, that the things that really happen to people are enormously influenced by the stories they know, and contrarywise, People tell new stories because of things that have happened to them, because of plagues, because of earthquakes, because of wars and so forth. Real events then get mythologized and real mythology mythologies change the events of history. They're very powerful, these stories. They come again and again. Certain stories keep re-emerging, certain unscientifically based but very mentally compelling emotionally compelling stories. This has happened. This is what is happening. They go hand in hand, and you never can really understand one without understanding the other. Um, And I always understood the stories, but it's been more recently that I came to understand the histories. Right. Um, Now, let's come to... um Wing Stallions and Wicked Mares. This is a book that's been long in gestation. Um, you at least 30, 35 years, uh, probably more. When did you first come in touch with horses in Indian mythology? What was your early experiences and uh, 
and really scholarly interest in horses? I think I've always been interested in animals in general. Um, I've always had dogs and so forth. I didn't ride horses as a child. Um, I came to horses the same time I came to India, uh, real India, in the first place. That is, in 1963, 1964, when I visited India for the first time, um, I accidentally met on a, on a plane flying from Calcutta to Kathmandu, Penelope Betjeman, Penelope Chetwood Betjeman, an English woman who was a great horsewoman. And when I moved to England two years later in 1965, she began to teach me to ride horses. So at the age of 25, that was my first actual experience of horses, and I became a horsewoman. And I've loved horses as long uh, for another uh, 35 years until I finally was um, unable to ride them anymore physically because of physical disabilities that I developed. So there were always these real horses, and all the time I've always loved the stories about horses. So there are horse stories in a lot of my books here and there and here and there. In the Rig Veda translation that I did for um, a Penguin, I think in 1980, um, right. I translated the stories of the horse sacrifice and the hymn to the horse and so forth. Then um, in the 80s, I was invited to give some lectures at All Souls, because that was in the 70s, um, hmm. Hmm. the Radhakrishna lectures at All Souls, and I gave them about horses. And um, it was in Oxford, near where um, Penelope Betjeman lived also, and she was going to be the guest at these lectures, and they were going to be dedicated to her, and she died on horseback. In India. Yes, you write about it in the introduction. Up, yeah. yeah, up up in the Kulu Hills. Um, mm. So I gave the lectures, but I never published them. The, the, the heart kind of went out of it. Um, so I had these lectures on horses with a lot of the ideas I had about them. And then sometime later, I was invited to give the Richard Lectures in Virginia. Um, and I... It's an honor to. It was, it, was, it was nice to be invited. And Virginia in America is horse country. That's where all right. the horsey people live. So I thought, well, I'll give my horse lectures for Virginia. So I took out the old Radha Krishna lectures from Old Souls and I added and changed and so forth. And I, I did that, but I, I didn't publish them at the time. And other things happened. And then a couple of years ago. I had a student who got a job at the University of Virginia, and it's always been my habit when a, when a, one of my students get a, gets a job, I fly down to visit, and sometimes I give a, a lecture, um, in sort of in honor of the student, really, and to meet his new colleagues and so forth, and show the flag, kind of. So I did that for this student, and the director of the University of Virginia Press wrote me a note saying, I hear, I see the posters, you're coming to give a lecture. You never gave us that book on horses 20 years ago. <laughs> and we have lunch and talk about it. So I had lunch with the director of the press. I liked him very much. And he was very enthusiastic. And I said, well, I have these old files from years ago, but I can't read them. They're, they're word perfect. It was an old file system. I, my, I can't even read them on my computer. So I'd have to start all over again. So he said, well, let me have the files. So I sent him the files. And an hour and a half later, he sent them back to me entirely formatted as Word files that I could read perfectly on my computer. So I said, okay, we'll do the book. And so I redid those files and I 
did some more research, and that's where the history came in. Those those were pretty much mythological lectures, but I then spent a couple of years working on the history behind it and put it all together, and it became the book, which was published in America in April and in India a couple of months later by Ravi Singh and Speaking Tiger. So, so it had a long history, that horsey book, went on and on and on, went through different stages. The acknowledgments page has hundreds and hundreds of names of people over those <laughs> years. So half of them dead, half of them long dead. Um, and some of them were really quite recent who gave me this piece of information and helped me here and helped me there. Um, I've never had so many people to thank for a book before because it, it, it spans such a long time. The making of a book itself is um, a bit of a book now. Uh, the, the first chapter is not like um, a book of history or a book on uh, horses at all, uh, religion at all. It's it's a very um, standard, in fact, much more than standard introduction to horses in, in India as a whole and also on breeding um, mm. and climate um, fodder. And so much more. I was wondering if you could try and give us a sense of that first chapter. It, it's it's not about history at all. It's, no, it's um, about real. It's about the reality of horses. Yes, and you you tell us that India is not exactly a horse country. Never been. So that's what I learned. That's actually the history that I learned. So on the one hand, you have. Um, Myths. You have the idea of winged stallions flying through the air. There are no such thing as winged stallions. Horses do not have wings. Horses are <laughs> often said to have wings. So there's the myth in the history. So what I found out, to my great surprise, because I knew there's so much about horses in India, the horses are everywhere in Indian mythology, that horses are not native to India. And when you import them, they don't do well, that the land of India is not horsey land. The great horses come from Egypt. They come from Ireland. They come from Kentucky. They come from countries that have certain climates where horses thrive. In India, they do not thrive. It's too hot. The monsoon is too wet. Their hooves break. Their hooves shatter and get moldy during the monsoon. Um, there's no grass for most of the year. You can't let them out to graze. You have to keep them in stables. That's not good for horses to be stabled all year and so forth. So that meant that horses were always foreign to India. They were always magical. They were always expensive. Only rich people could have them. You didn't have a situation as you had in Ireland where every peasant had some kind of a horse. You don't have horses in India. If you have any money, you have a bullock. Um, you wouldn't want a horse. It wouldn't do well. It won't do farm work in India. So you have not this grassroots industry where horses come up and are raced and so forth. You have kings importing thousands and thousands of horses at the cost of hundreds and millions and crores of rupees in order to have cavalry, basically. And all kings of India had lots and lots of horses and had big cavalries, and they were never the horses of the people. And therefore, it's not surprising that there are horses in the Rig Veda and the Mahabharata, but it's very surprising that horses are all over 
Indian folklore in Tamil Nadu and in Rajasthan and Bengal and so forth. Now, Rajasthan is one of the few places in India where you can raise horses. It's still mm-hmm. not as good as a temperate climate. It's not as good uh, as Ireland or Kentucky, but you can raise, and people do raise good horses. Also, Pakistan, what is now Pakistan, the Punjab, um, that has some grazing lands. And when I, I had a trip to India as part of the research for the book, I went and talked to people in studs who raise horses up in Pune, where some of the best horses are bred. And they all said that they, if they had grazing all year round, their horses would be two inches higher. And they also said, these are Indians, that Pakistan got the best breeding lands. This was said with some resentment um, and some truth. <laughs> so there are one or two places in India where you could breed horses, but mostly you brought them in that was expensive. You brought them over the Himalayan passes, which was difficult but not impossible, or you imported them by sea, which was very difficult because horses can't throw up. Um, right. And when they right. get sick, they are likely to get a tangled gut, which is fatal. And so it's very hard to import horses by sea, very expensive, a lot of <sighs> dollar voyage. So there, were re- I, there was real life history, which I really needed to know to explain why horses were so expensive, so magical, so privileged. And then the mystery was, the remaining mystery is, no one had horses. How come folklore and folk painting and folk statues and folk worship was full of horses? Everywhere you get little brass horses, little stone horses, people worshiping horses, horses in temples. So that was when I realized that really horses in India are mythological animals, that the real horses mattered to the people who had them, of course. That's the kings who had the best horses were the kings who won in the battles. They mattered a lot. Elephants are useful, but not as useful as horses. That's a whole nother story. We won't go there. Let's just bracket the subject of elephants. Basically, if you had a lot of horses, uh, you won. Um, right. But then the mystery really was why the people who didn't have horses were crazy and, and- about horses. That brings me to uh, that particular phase of Indian civilization where horses have become a very serious bone of contention, the Indus Valley, really. What what was it about Indus Valley and horses of not having horses during those times? Well, it's a good question. Um, it's There's two side-by-side questions, the Indus Valley and the origin of the Indo-European pe- speaking peoples. So on the one hand, you have the Rig Veda, which is the oldest Indian document, the oldest form of Sanskrit, um, one of the oldest of the documents of the whole family of Indo-European languages, which go from Ireland all the way through France, Germany, England, down to Greece and Rome, and to Russia and so forth. So these great mass of countries with people in it that speak languages that are all related and that Mm. have been called, for lack of a better word, the Indo-European languages. And the people who spoke them are called the Indo-European speakers. And the question is, how did they get to India and who were they? And the question is, did they go from someplace else into India or did they come from India and go everywhere else? And that's a much related <sighs> question. And part, part of it is settled by horses because the Indo-Europeans right. had horses. 
wherever they went, there were horses. They were a horsey culture. They sacrificed horses. They talked about horses. The word for horse is the same in Indo, you know, and so forth. So wherever there are Indo-Europeans, there are horses. Mm-hmm. And that is not to say that wherever there are horses, there are Indo-Europeans. Horses did appear elsewhere as well. So you had horses in the New World, really, and you had horses in Africa and so forth. Not many, but the great culture of horses was the Indo-Europeans. So if the Indus Valley was related in any way to Indo-European culture, there would be horses in it. There would be bones of horses left in the excavations. There would be pictures of horses carved on all those many beautifully carved little seals that are our main cultural treasure from there, and there aren't any. And since there are no horses in the Indus Valley, there is no connection between the Indus Valley civilization and the civilization of the Rig Veda. End End of argument, really. It goes on because there are political investments in it. But that's why horses are so important to that question. The Indo-European, the Indus Valley people had a language. So there are some of it is carved on the seals, but no one has been able to decipher it. There's not enough of it to decipher. So it's possible that it's Sanskrit. It's possible that it's Tamil, but it can't be an Indo-European civilization because there are no horses. Right. And and we will certainly not get into that space because it will probably consume this interview and 20,000 others, really, and it's still not be done. So um, why don't you um, tell us a little in some detail, I suppose, about horses that come later in in the epics and in the Puranas? What is it that's distinctive about horses in in the Puranas, for instance, which is um, where you uh, lord over practically? So there are the, the Puranas then extend over this long period of time, um, and they also extend over a, a, a big geographical area. So some of the later Puranas are written um, after the period of the Delhi Sultanate and so forth, when you have um, a lot of uh, Arabic culture coming right. in. And you right. also have um, in the Rajasthani epics, which are only a little bit later than the Puranas, but are written in a, in a vernacular, um, quite a lot of influence of um, the Arabic mythology of horses. So it changes. So in the Veda and the Mahabharata, it's all about stallions, and the mares are very negative. There are all sorts of stories about bad mares, wicked mares. Right. Whereas the Arabs loved mares, um, the Muslims loved mares, um, Mohammed rode mares and so forth. Um, and you begin to get then in the medieval Indian literature, both in Sanskrit and in Rajasthani and other native um, vernaculars, stories of good mares, of heroes with magical mares, wonderful mares who love them and so forth. So you can really see the influence of another culture um, on the mythology of, of horses in India, even as, of course, the great horses that were bred in India were almost, uh, ideally, were sired by Arabian horses, the breed of right. horses known as Arab horses, as opposed to thoroughbreds or Marwari horses or other um, local uh, Indian, Indian breeds. So you can see a cultural difference um, in some of those Rajasthani epics, for instance, the hero's best friend is a Muslim. You begin mm-hmm. to get, you know, the, the presence of 
of another culture and of the culture of that that culture's um, attitude toward horses and so forth. So so that changes in in the metal in the medieval Puranas and in the Rajasthani epics as well. Uh, things happen. Then you get the British, and you get British mythologies of horses, and you get Kipling writing about writing oh, about yes. horses and so forth. And so, you know, each generation has its own influences. Um, it's uh, it's history. It reflects what's going on both in actual events in India and in the development of literary themes. Uh, I was very curious about the chapter on the Buddhist horses. Yeah. How how do you really distinguish between horses in the Puranas and horses in the Buddhist uh, canon, as it were? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. The, the horses in the Buddhist canon are a little different. On the one hand, again, you have the basic distinction between wonderful stallions and wicked mares. Mm-hmm. That stays in the Buddhist texts. Um, in the in the Buddha Charita, for instance, you have the first um, of a number of retellings of the story of how the Bodhisattva escaped from the palace in the night when he wanted to become the Buddha, and he rode his wonderful horse, and the the gods came and cupped their hands under the horse's hooves in, on the marble floors of the palace so that nobody heard him riding the horse. Kantaka is the name of the horse, riding the horse out of the palace. And the early Buddhist sculptures often show the horse as representing the Buddha. The Buddha is invisible. Mm-hmm. All you see mm-hmm. is the horse progressing, and the Buddha is in some ways invisibly present in the horse. And when the Buddha says goodbye to the horse forever because he's going to become a mendicant and has no use for a royal steed, the horse weeps. And the weeping of, of Kantika is a, is a theme that comes um, throughout um, Buddhist mythology and so forth. So on the one hand, you have this Buddhist version of the noble stallion. And then right. you get in the Jatakas some wonderful stories of horse-headed demonesses, yakis, yakinis, um, who are sexually voracious and capture sailors and gobble them up and keep them as sexual slaves and so forth. And lots of pictures also on Buddhist sculptures of these evil, evil horse-headed women, uh, horse-headed yakinis, demonesses and so forth. So that's sort of a, a place that Buddhism takes off from classical Vedic and then medieval Hindu texts and, and goes in its own direction um, and has its own horse mythology, which is related to Hindu mythology. Buddhism is obviously always closely related to Hinduism and influenced it back and forth. It wasn't a separate thing in that sense. So, so the Buddhist texts are very interesting. The theme of the weeping horse is a Buddhist theme, not a Hindu theme. We- is a very, very distinct kind of a shift, really. Uh, there's a far greater degree of, shall I say, spiritualization of sorts. Uh, mm-hmm. in, in I don't know if that's the right word to use, but it's a very distinct kind of canon uh, for sure. It is, because it's, it emphasizes much more compassion toward animals. It does not have animal sacrifice as the Hindu texts do. Does not have a horse sacrifice as the Hindu texts do. So it goes in a different direction. You also get the theme of the weeping horse in the Muslim mythology, which is also in India Muslim horse mythology. The, the horse of Karbala that weeps 
um, when Hussein is slain, and that is um, there's a procession that celebrates every year that commemorates this event, and there is a horse that that is said to weep during the profession. So the weeping horse is also a Muslim horse theme that is represented among Muslims in India in their horse culture. So that's the theme that that is that that's more widespread, but it's not really a a Hindu theme. It's a Muslim and Buddhist theme, the weeping. Right. So um, I was just wondering how does uh, historically the broad theme of the horse myth, as it were, change over time and over history? Say, how does it morph, especially in in um, the martial uh, race kind of folklore? Uh, with regard, for instance, uh, the Rajputs, Rana Pratap's Chetak, and yeah. so forth, where horses now stand in for a certain kind of nationalist valor. It's ironical, given that horses have uh, been largely, as I hear you, somewhat alien to Indian culture. So would you say that over the last uh, millennium and a half, horses had been, in a certain sense, domesticated by this uh, meats over time? In India. Yeah, I think I think there are ways. Absolutely, although the, although horses are originally foreign to India and have always been alien to the common people of India, the peasants of India, if you will, the ordinary people, uh, they've become very much a part of the culture of the Rajputs. Um, again, wealthy Rajputs, but Rajputs and nevertheless sort of kings, uh, Ran Pratap and so forth. So the the horse mythology of the Rajputs develops in 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 the in the direction of general heroism. You have various versions of the story of the horse that goes up against an elephant and rears up and um, strikes the elephant with his hooves and his back legs are cut off and still he fights on and so forth. That's a story that's attributed to several different horses in different parts of Rajput uh, culture. So you have in that sense, um, the horse becoming part of, of the native mythology. And then you have other ways in which horses become part of uh, even a more general um, Hindu culture. You have the tradition of the white horse that the bridegroom rides on a wedding. Right. Um, that's all over. Uh, I'm really curious. When does it come about? How old is the tradition? I, I have absolutely no idea. You know, I don't know how far back it goes. Um, it certainly is present in the 18th and 17th century, but it's not in the Puranas, right. except in the sense that it's supposed to, in some vague way, represent um, the carrying off of women. Uh, by horsemen, um, uh, the raid of women, uh, and so forth. So I don't think it goes very far back. Um, the tradition of using Marwari horses in particular and white Marwari horses, I think, is quite modern. So let's say certainly 19th century, probably 18th century, but I don't think it's attested before that. It's also very specific in terms of region. I mean, for instance, uh uh, yeah. Bengal would not have something like that. They'd have the the palanquins, for instance, bearing the yeah. bride and so on. Um, yeah. So, so what happens next? What are you working on currently? I hear you working on translations of uh, the last part of 
your translation of the Mahabharata. And you're also planning to bring out the latest that you wrote uh, to your parents while as a student in India. Tell us a little more about what we look forward to, to reading um, from you in the next two or three years. What do well, we look forward to? Those, well, those two books actually are done. I, I'm, I'm not working on them anymore. Ravi Singh is working on them. Uh, Ravi Singh, my publisher, <laughs> um, has both right. of them. Um, and he's editing them. Um, the Mahabharata is a translation of the last four books of the Mahabharata, um, uh, part of the 15th book, the Ashramavasika book, and mm. then all of um, the 16th book, the Mausala Parwan, and the 17th book, the um, Swarga Rohana, the 18th book, the Swarga Rohana, and so forth. So those last four books um, I've translated. They've never been, well, the whole of the Mahabharata has been translated a number of times in a number of different ways. Mm-hmm. New translations mm-hmm. are coming out all the time. But there's never been a careful scholarly translation of them. And I thought they were worth doing. They're very interesting books. They have a kind of unity. They're all about what happens after the war. The title of the book is now After the War, the last books of the Mahabharata, where people are trying to figure out how to rebuild the world of peace. And it's partly about what we now call peace and reconciliation. The two warring sides, the Pandavas and the Kauravas, they're brothers, they're cousins. They they have to learn to live together. I think it's discussing the same problems that we found in Rwanda. We were finding all these countries where a civil war ends and you have to live with the people that have killed your brothers and your children and so forth. And that's what this book is, these books of the Mahabharata are really about, about how you live in the aftermath of a war. I think it speaks very much to um, our present concerns of all the wars all over the world that we're trying to clean up after, most recently Afghanistan. What's going yes, to happen? No, I couldn't agree more. It's happening again and again. So the war is over, but the war is not over when the war is over. You have these people who tried to kill each other, and now they're supposed to live together in a nation. So I think it's a very timely question. And then, of course, these are just wonderful texts. The Mahabharata is so rich and so complicated, and I had such a wonderful time translating it. So, so that's now in press. Uh, Ravi Singh is is editing that, and that I think is going to come out in January. I don't know. Ravi knows, so I, I give them to him, and then it's all for him to do. Then there's another book that he's editing, right. which needs more editing. Um, so there are people who, who have seen an early edition of it, people who shall remain nameless, um, <laughs> early edition of, of it. They'll the go nameless, book, yes. The published book is going to be very different from that early edition because there's a lot that needs to be edited out. These are letters I wrote to my parents when I was really quite young. I was 22. So a lot of it is stuff about just silly stuff. 
uh, please send me my my red shirt. I bought you a a painting that I've sold. I'm sending it to you. Why don't you write to me more? I'm homesick. Send me more letters. Um, they're coming to visit me. When you come, I don't think we should actually go to Gujarat. Let's go to Bombay instead. There's just stuff that's boring, which is stuff between uh, parents and children. But then there's also stuff that's embarrassing. I was very young and I was very pampered. And I was so shocked by the poverty of the Calcutta slums, which is where I first went in India, mm-hmm. that a lot of what I wrote really didn't make any sense in a way. and has to be apologized for. So we're editing out some of those portions to leave a more coherent whole. We're doing it chronologically so you can see in some ways how I, I grew up a lot. <laughs> Living in India for a year grew me up quite a lot. And so there's a development, a chronological development. And so some of the stupidity in the early letters is corrected in the later letters. You can see that my eyes are beginning to be opened a little bit. But right through what really redeems the book is the wonderful encounters with some very good friends that I kept for years afterwards, wonderful people that I met at Shanti Niketan and in Calcutta, and also encounters with some very great and famous and wonderful people. Um, a long section on how I studied the Sharod with Ali Akbar Khan and got to know him very well, um, with the uh, Tagores in Shanti Niketan, and then just casual encounters of really nice people on trains and buses and in dock bungalows and so forth. So there are a lot of really wonderful human encounters that I think redeem the book from the kind of spoiled brat quality of some of the contemplations of um, Indian poverty and uh, the conflict between my love of ancient India and my shock at what a lot of modern India was, a kind of an Orientalist, antiquarian attitude. So it's a, it's a funny mix of a book. It has some really good things in it and some good writing and some wonderful experiences, and it has some childish things that have to be at least annotated, if not edited out. Um, so that's the work that I've been doing on it and that Ravi Singh is continuing to do. So we'll see see what we decide is still worth publishing at the end of it. It's not going to be a very long book, a couple hundred pages. They're long letters and many of them. So I think it'll still be an interesting book, but the reader needs to be helped through it. I wrote a lot of footnotes, a lot of private <laughs> jokes between me and my parents, or citations, <laughs> you know, a lot of Jewish jokes that I'm referring to in the as a footnote. This is a joke about and so forth. So it needed a lot, a lot of editing. And that's what I've been doing and, and have more or less finished. Ravi Singh is now editing it. And when he finishes, I'll, we'll, I'll work with his edits. And that's going to be coming out, I think, before the Mahabharata book, actually, because it's shorter and easier to edit. Hearing you talk about it, I get a sense of someone learning very, very fast and uh, adjusting to a new world over a period of uh, a, a year and a half at most? No, nine um, months. Nine months. I went back early. I became very ill and I didn't spend the entire year. Yeah, so it was nine months. It's true. So in the in the first couple of letters, I say, you know, the heat is not bad at all. I think, I don't know what people make such a fuss. It's really not that hot. 
then about two weeks later, I said, my God, it's hot here. This is so hot. I don't see how anybody lives in this heat and so forth. So you, you see a development. I'm learning fast indeed. And I'm also learning about the world. That's not even just India. I'd never really been anywhere. So it's a really a Bildungsroman in, in, in a very basic it sense. It is indeed. It is indeed. That's why I left in some of the embarrassing things, because they get mended later on, more or less. I'd like, like to conclude with something that uh, I've heard you say in another lecture on your academic career. You said the two themes that run through your entire body of scholarship over the years is uh, rebelliousness and masquerade uh, at the same time. Hmm. And uh, your approach to questions where you don't agree or themes that somehow appear to you inadequate has always been to get back to them and respond with a piece of scholarship, with writing. Yeah. Uh, that has happened to you of late in case of India and Hinduism too. And you've come back with uh, better books. Uh, mm. How does these two themes square up really? Uh, rebelliousness and masquerade at the same time. And does how does that really encompass a career like yours? So diverse and yet so consistent at certain levels too. Well, that's a very interesting and complicated question. So I haven't written about rebelliousness as much as I have rebelled. Um, um, I have rebelled against what I regard as the perpetuation of wrong ideas about the history of Indian texts. I have, for instance, rebelled against the oft-repeated statement that the Bhagavad Gita is the Bible of Hinduism, that all Hindus <laughs> know and love the Bhagavad Gita. Right. And that always right. makes me mad every time I hear it, because on the one hand, there's so much else in Hinduism that Hindus believe in, and there are books that are so much more interesting than the Bhagavad Gita, just beginning with the Upanishads, which are far more interesting than the Bhagavad Gita, and have had much more of an influence on the history of Indian culture. So every time anyone's talking about Bhagavad Gita, I, I lose my temper. Um, and um, it's a shame that that is taken, that people think that they know about Hinduism when they know the Gita. That makes me so cross because so much of Hinduism is so different and so much more interesting, so much more complex. What seems simplified in the Gita is tackled in its complexity in other texts, which say it's not so easy. You can't just you can't just simply solve the problem of death like that. And then secondly, the context of the Gita, which no one talks about except scholars who know about it, which is that it's the book in which God persuades Arjuna to go to war and kill his friends and relations. And that's a bad thing to do, I think. And religious texts have always been used to for God in England and all of that. So all the wars that are fought for religions make me mad, and, and the Mahabharata war fought for religion makes me mad too. So 
that's the kind of thing that I rebel against because it never goes away. People keep saying it and I keep saying, no, no, it's not. The Gita is not all of Hinduism. So that's the rebelliousness. It's a rebellion against the perpetuation of wrong ideas about what Hinduism is all about. Um, as for masquerade, I don't know if that's related in the same way. Um, I've, I've always been interested in make-believe, and in a sense, mythology is make-believe. But I've always been interested in the ways that human beings find out who they are by pretending to be somebody else. So you have a simple masquerade. You have a, a villain wearing a mask when he commits a robbery, but that's not what you're really talking about. You're talking about men pretending to be women, um, uh, Jews pretending to be Christians. You're talking about good people pretending to be bad people and bad people pretending to be good people. Um, and the way that the, the true self, which is always ultimately unavailable, is partially realized, partially made available by going sideways. Why is it that this man is always masquerading as a woman? Hmm, I wonder what that's all about, and so forth and so on. Um, so I think that in more repressive societies, there's more need to masquerade. When you can't actually be what you are, you pretend to be something else. And so a lot of truth comes out in masquerades. And um, they're also fun. That's what's always fascinated me. That, that, that phrase is magical. The disguise is the reality and the reality of the disguise. Yeah. I guess that's the best note on which to conclude the conversation <laughs> today. And it, it's so much really to take in that uh, not just me, um, our audience too will be having uh, plenty to take in. Thank you so much for your time and generosity. Thank you so much, Wendy. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to talk about my work. There's nothing that makes me happier. It's very, I'm very delighted. To have it shows every minute, every single word of your shows. The kind <laughs> of childlike interest that you take and invest in every single sentence, every oh, yeah. single thought of yours until you, you express them with uh, clarity the absolute possible clarity. Well, that's the that's what it's all about, isn't it? So thank you for it being is, in, it is. in my work. I really appreciate it. Thank you all. This is Onirban signing off. Do please subscribe and let us know what you like and what you'd like included in History Chatter. Bye-bye.